This week, of course, is Thanksgiving in our nation. It's one of the most important and perhaps undervalued holidays that we have. When and how did this custom begin? Well, that depends on how far back one wants to go. 234 years ago, our first president of our blessed nation, George Washington, issued what's now known as the Thanksgiving Proclamation of 1789. A month before, on October 3rd, Washington assigned the last Thursday of November as, quote, a day of public thanksgiving and prayer. That day of thanksgiving and prayer, Washington proclaimed, should, quote, be observed by acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. That would indeed be a great way to spend Thanksgiving Day, acknowledging with grateful hearts the many signal favors of Almighty God. It wasn't until 74 years later, however, that Thanksgiving became an annual national day of observance. And it was started by a devoted wife and mother named Sarah Hale. Every year she would write editorials. She lobbied five different presidents to argue for a national day of Thanksgiving. In one of her editorials from 1861, Sarah Hale argued for a national day, an annual day of Thanksgiving like this. This is how her editorial began. Quote, Oh, praise the Lord, for he is good and his mercy endures forever. Amidst all the agitations that stir the minds of men and cause the hearts of women to tremble in fear and sorrow, among all the woes generated by human passion and human sins, the mercy of the Lord is over his children. It is the king of heaven who gives us year by year the kindly fruits of earth, prepares our bread in due season, and we must acknowledge that the goodness of God has not failed. Shall we not then lay aside our worldly cares and our pursuits on one day of the year, devoting it to a public thanksgiving for all the good gifts God has bestowed on us and on all the earth? That too would be a great way to spend Thanksgiving Day. As Mrs. Hale says, acknowledging the goodness of God has not failed. Devoting it to a public day of Thanksgiving for all of God's good gifts. For those efforts, historians now hail Sarah Hale as the mother of Thanksgiving. For in 1863, one month before he gave the Gettysburg Address, which took place today in history, President Lincoln finally heeded the direct pleas of Mrs. Hale and he issued a public proclamation of thanksgiving to be observed every year thereafter on October 3rd, 1863. And here is part of his proclamation. I do now therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea, those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. He has given us gracious gifts, who while dealing with us in our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. In addition to thanking our beneficent Father who dwells in heaven, calling us to remember how he's dealt with us in mercy, President Lincoln encouraged Americans to do one more thing. I do further recommend to my fellow citizens they do reverently humble themselves in the dust and from thence offer up penitent and fervor prayers and supplications to God on this national day of thanksgiving. 
So to summarize, George Washington and Sarah Hale and President Lincoln, Thanksgiving Day should be a day that we count our blessings and that we confess our sins. For as we count our blessings, we acknowledge in the words of Sarah Hale that God's goodness has not failed. And we recognize at the same time the words of St. Paul who said, Do you not know that the goodness of God now leads you to repentance? So let Thanksgiving Day be a day that we acknowledge the signal favors of God, especially the forgiveness of our sins. Because friends, what does it profit any of us if we gain the whole world and lose our, you say it, soul. But even this brief tour doesn't go far back enough. I want to make two more stops before we land on our text. For in September of 1620, a small band of 102 men and women boarded a boat that some have called a wooden bathtub with masts. The Mayflower was about 100 feet long, 25 feet wide, or in football terms, 30 yards long and only 8 yards wide. For 65 days of seasickness and storms, the 102 passengers endured the voyage. One of the passengers, William Bradford, who would become the governor of this new colony, reflected on the hardships of their departure and the new land by saying this. They knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted their eyes to the heavens, their dearest country. They arrived in November of 1620, just in time for a New England winter that killed nearly half of them. Unlike many of the other colonies that came to the Americas before, the nations that came before, the heart of this group did not come for gold or glory. They came because they had been harried out of England by King James, and they wanted to worship God according to the Bible out of a free conscience. They left everything behind, endured the hardship of the high seas in a small ship, endured disease in a deadly winter, all in many respects, so they could worship the Lord in keeping with his word alone and from a pure conscience without persecution. We certainly can be thankful to God for some measure for them, for what they desired. We have all enjoyed in America for all of our life, worshiping God in accordance with his word without persecution. And we can say, thank you, Lord. One year later, in the fall of 1621, Edward Winslow records a meal of thanksgiving that lasted not one day, but three days. Our harvest being gotten in, he wrote, our governor sent four men hunting. The four in one day killed as much fowl as served our company for almost a week. And the midst of which were many other recreations, we exercised our arms. They don't mean an arm wrestling contest, but they took up their guns and had a shooting contest. But what was an English affair, one historian notes, soon became an overwhelmingly native celebration as the Wampanoag leader Massasoit arrived in Plymouth with 90 of his men and five freshly killed deer. And for three days, Winslow remembered, quote, we entertained and we feasted. This was an international celebration. In addition to feasting on deer, William Bradford, the governor of Plymouth Pilgrims, writes that we also enjoyed, quote, cod and bass and other fish of which we took a good store. And beside waterfowl, there was a great store of wild turkeys. Outside of the direct historical record, some even say they enjoyed everyone's Thanksgiving favorite, eel. 
There was, however, no pumpkin pie, no cranberry sauce, certainly not shaped like a can, and no sweet potatoes. But for three days, they feasted and gave thanks. And while the pilgrims would not have seen it as a Thanksgiving day as we do today, they no doubt gave praise and thanks to God for William Bradford wrote one year earlier in 1620 when their feet hit land, being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell among their knees and blessed the God of heaven who'd brought them over the vast and furious ocean, delivering them from all the perils and miseries thereof. Being thus passed over the ocean, they had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, not house or much less towns to repair to. No wonder one year later, they spent three days of feasting and thanksgiving with the Wampanoag people. And this is where the American national holiday of Thanksgiving goes back to people just like you and me wanting to know if there's some place they could be right with God and have a pure conscience according to his word. And Governor Bradford quoted Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for his mercy endures forever. That's at least where the inspiration for our national Thanksgiving holiday comes from. But pardon me if I take one more lap this morning. Even that doesn't go far back enough to the first Thanksgiving, at least for not what brings us here this morning, whatever nation you are from. During the first century in the Middle East, a converted rabbi named Paul commanded a congregation like this one, quote, 1 Corinthians 5.18, keep the Thanksgiving feast. Some faith traditions refer to this as the Eucharist by its Greek name. That's not because there's something magical and sacrificial and forgiving that happens at the feast, as the Church of Rome falsely teaches, but because the word simply means thanksgiving. So we read in 1 Corinthians 11.24 that on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ broke bread and he gave thanks. He eucharistas. Do this in remembrance of me. Thus the Lord's Supper really is the original Thanksgiving feast. According to Holy Scripture, the Lord's Supper is the Thanksgiving meal of the Christian family, reminding us that above all people and above all things, we must be thankful for the forgiveness of our sins. And that's why we are here every Sunday. And particularly today, as we take the bread and the cup, we give thanks to God while dealing with us in our anger. He has nevertheless remembered mercy. And just as I imagine your Thanksgiving meal will involve a prayer, I want to show us a Thanksgiving prayer from the Bible that will lead us into this Thanksgiving feast that we're all commanded to partake to the praise of our great Christ. Would you please locate Colossians 1? It's in the second half of the Christian Bible. Colossians 1. In this book... Paul, who commanded another church elsewhere to keep the feast, the Thanksgiving feast, he writes to a church that he did not start and he had never visited. And I want you to notice how Paul opens up a letter to a church he had never visited but only heard about. You in Colossians 1, chapter 1, look at me in Colossians 1 and now verse 3, just the first line. This is what Holy Scripture says. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
And Paul is giving thanks and praying for a church that he's never visited. How do you know that? Look at verse 9. And so from the day that we heard, if you looked earlier from Epaphras, from the day that we heard about you, we have not ceased to pray for you. So what's happening? Paul is giving thanks to God for this church that he gives thanks for often, a church he did not start and he had never been to in his life. Now think of that for a moment, beloved. If Paul can give thanks for a church he never visited, can we give thanks? Should we give thanks for our church? Isn't that what we did in part the last hour? We spent time at our elders retreat the last few days. And part of it, we spent thanking God for ways we've seen him at work in our body in you all. One of one of the greatest gifts God's given to me, not simply as a pastor, but as a Christian, as a brother, as a husband and father is you all, this congregation, to me. Just this last Wednesday night, my daughter joined here at this church, having made her profession of faith and baptized on profession of it, which came in part as she watched this congregation be faithful over the years, particularly in disciplining the unrepentant, which had an effect on her life. Not only that, but many of you here listening to me this morning, have and still do invest in her life. I thank my God as a member and brother in Christ upon every remembrance of you. You are my boasting and my joy. One of the kindest gifts God has given to me as a brother, as a husband, as a father, and a pastor. And if Paul gave thanks to God for a church he never visited, whose faces he could never recognize then we give thanks for one another today as well. So Paul begins with an expression of thanksgiving that shows up in his prayer life. Whenever I pray, I I pray for you, giving thanks. Okay, but what does Paul pray for to this church he's never been to? Look at verse 4. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why, Paul? Why are you praying? Why are you thanking God for them? Since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Here is a wonderful trinity of Christian virtues. Faith, love, and hope. I have heard of your genuine faith, not in works, not in the church, not in yourself. I heard of your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. And that faith and love, Paul says, has arisen in some measure because of the hope you know is laid up for you in heaven. That's what the text says. We give thanks since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, a faith and a love that in some measure are based on the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. So I always give thanks for you, church at Colossians. Why? Because your faith in Christ, your love for the church spring for your hope, from your hope and what God has prepared for you. And beloved, if we have forgotten these special blessings of faith in Christ and love for one another and hope in heaven because of Christ, then the Lord's Supper calls us to remember those things we have. For we remember the Lord has forgiven us through faith in him alone. He's put us in a church family so that we can partake of one loaf from one cup because our our collective hope, our heavenly home is in Christ who will one day come again. Do this in remembrance of me and give thanks 
for Christ, the love of brothers and sisters, and the hope of heaven. But did you notice something? Just like Paul, he doesn't tell us what he's praying for them about yet. I, I, I give thanks to God praying for you because of your faith, hope, and love, but what are you praying for them about? Well, now for the content of their prayer, would you read verses 19 and 14? Because now Paul gave to us the basis of his prayer, verses 3 to 9, and now the content of Paul's thanksgiving prayer, verses 9 to 14. The content of Paul's thanksgiving prayer, Colossians 1, 9, this is what Holy Scripture says. And so, or for this reason, for the faith, hope, and love I just heard about, for this reason, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what I'm praying for you about. I'm asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to God the Father, who has done three things. He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of, in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Paul has one main request, one main purpose in his thanksgiving prayer, and that one request and that one purpose are characterized by a number of things that we'll look at. Let me show you each of them, and then we'll just we'll look at the very last one. So Paul's main request is this, verse 9. What's his main request? Verse 9, I'm asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Now, here he doesn't mean circumstantial experiential will. Should I go back for another trip uh, to the buffet? Uh, sh who should I marry? Uh, where should I go to college? Should I take the... He's not praying for the circumstantial will, but we would be filled with the fullness of knowing God's objective revealed. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God, that you give thanks in all things, that you would be filled with the knowledge of what his will is revealed in his word. So Paul has one main request that you would be filled with the knowledge of what God has revealed in his word. Then at the very beginning of verse 10, Paul shares the main purpose of this request. I'm praying this way so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. So I have one request. And I have one purpose that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. But now here are four things that characterize that worthy walk he prays for. I pray that you would walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him with your lives characterized by these four things. Bearing fruit in every good work. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Being strengthened with all power. And number four, giving thanks. Those are the four things that characterize the Christian's worthy walk of the Lord. Bearing fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with strength, and giving thanks. Now, we're just going to look at the very last one of those characteristics this morning. I call verse 12 the dessert of the passage because it begins with thanks and verse 3, and now he's going to end with thanks. So Paul's saving the thanksgiving dessert, whatever you like, 
Think of that here because that's verse 12. So let's look at this Thanksgiving dessert. He says, I am this worthy walk, fourth characteristic, walking worthy of the Lord will be characterized by this in your life as a church. You will be characterized by giving thanks to God the Father who qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So here we come, beloved, not only to the heart of Paul's prayer, but to our thanksgiving anytime we give thanks. And what is that? We don't give thanks finally and ultimately for health or jobs or kids or the Cowboys winning this week. But we give thanks most of all and best of all for the forgiveness of our sins Because, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness. When I give thanks for you, that's the heartbeat of my thanksgiving. Friends, what we are thankful for reveals what we value most. For Paul, the only thing, the main thing for which he gives thanks is this. In him you have redemption, even the forgiveness of your sins. Because above all things, Christians are thankful and above all things, Christians are most thankful that our sins are forgiven. Beloved, just just remind yourselves, yes, we give thanks for all of the daily bread he gives to us and we forget not all of his benefits. And that's true. But what we are most thankful for, we're not most thankful for a good grade on a test or a, a, a successful gallbladder surgery or a good musical performance. Christians are most thankful that we've been delivered from the domain of darkness, redeemed from sin's bondage and forgiven of our sins so that we can come to this table and enjoy our pardon and remember what he's done for us. I want you to notice quickly the object of our thanksgiving. He says, we give thanks to God, our father. At the very least, friends, that means there is somebody to whom you owe your existence and your every breath, somebody outside of yourself. We thank God the Father. G.K. Chesterton wrote, When we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our two stockings with legs? We are not self-existent, independent beings. God made us and we owe him everything. And in this season of giving thanks, this Thanksgiving prayer, we show our humble dependence on God for his forgiveness, not received by works, but by faith. When you thank God the Father for this, you are acknowledging I am a sinner and I needed life and forgiveness from you. And if you're not thankful, you're not humble. Thankful people are most humbled that God the Father has forgiven my sins. And so I come to God at this table and through this prayer, not only as God as a creator, but more intimately as our Father. And the highest privilege of the gospel is giving thanks to God as Father. That's what J.I. Packer wrote in his classic work, Knowing God. He writes, in adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship He establishes as his children and heirs closeness, affection and generosity are at the heart of this relationship to be right with God. The judge justification is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God, the father adoption is even 
greater. Now think of the reason that we give thanks to God the Father. Paul is going to list a number of them. He says here, we've been qualified, we've been delivered, we've been transferred, and we've been redeemed. Paul slows down here. Paul can't endure for somebody to say, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for my salvation. I get that, man. I get that. But Paul's not just saying, I thank God that he saved you what you got. Now, Paul said, can we slow down a little bit? Can we talk about the food on the Thanksgiving table? Can we talk about all the culinary delights? that are? Can we slow down and think about what it means that he's... Can we talk about this dish and this dish? So now he's going to lay out four dishes of Thanksgiving for us. First, here's, here's the first dish. I give thanks that he's qualified you to share in the saints' inheritance. Now, I think, to me, when I read qualified in the ESV, it sounds boring and mid and basic, like you qualified for round run of the race. Or you qualified for the job. Whoop-de-doo. But if you have been filling out scholarships for college and you get a letter saying you qualify for a full-ride scholarship, now that's a big deal. If you have a huge medical surgery that you had and you send in this bill to the insurance company and the insurance company says your procedure qualifies for full payment, now that's a big deal. That's the idea that Paul means here even more. You've not earned anything. God himself has qualified you. He's made you eligible for this inheritance. Here's how the word is used. First Timothy, second Timothy two, two, Paul uses this word qualified when he says you should look for faithful men in a church to be an elder who are able to teach. It refers to an ability. And Matthew three eleven, John the Baptist, when he's talking about Jesus says, I'm baptizing you with water. I'm baptizing you in this, in, in this moment. But after me is going to come somebody who's so much more powerful and greater than I am, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. I'm not able to carry. I'm not qualified to carry. I'm not competent to carry. But Paul gives thanks to God because God has done for us what we could never do. He has made us eligible. He himself has qualified us. God the Father has provided what we need the most and then he gives it to us, the inheritance of the gospel. After the exodus and entrance in the promised land, uh, God divided the land among the tribes of Israel. Each of them is to receive an inheritance, a share of the land is the word. With one exception, the Levites had no inheritance. They had no share, the word used here, or inheritance, the word used here, among their Israelites. Why? The Lord would be their share, their inheritance. Well, I think Paul's borrowing from that imagery in Deuteronomy 10 and seeing, saying, I'm giving thanks that God has made you eligible. He's qualified you to share in the inheritance. I'm not speaking of land. I'm speaking of the inheritance of Christ himself. That's your inheritance. Our true treasure this Thanksgiving is Christ. The true treasury of the church, wrote Martin Luther, is not the merits of the saints, but Christ and the gospel. Second, here's the next dish, giving thanks that he, he qualified you for the inheritance who is Christ. Second and third, we give thanks that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred. They go together, but they're separate. So pardon me if I put two dishes together. I just put gravy on the mashed potatoes. That's just what happened. It goes together. At one level, Paul's picking up again, I think, in part, the language of the Exodus. That picture is bleak. They're under the domain of Egypt. They're made slaves by their oppressors. They're under the dark domain of Egypt in a foreign kingdom. But now through the death 
of the shed blood of a perfect lamb, what did God do? He delivered them from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of the promised land. So Paul's picking up that imagery, reminding us where that we have been in the domain of darkness, not under the domain of Egypt, but of sin, not under the domain of Pharaoh, but of ourselves and Satan himself. And now he gives thanks that God has delivered us. He's rescued us from our sin. He's rescued us even from God himself and translated us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom He's well-pleased. And if we're in His kingdom in whom He's well-pleased, then He's well-pleased with us. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, you, you, know what your, you know what the autobiography of everybody's life? You were dead in sin. You were dominated by the prince of the power of the air. And you were doomed to eternal perdition. That's your testimony. Elsewhere, John can say the whole world lies under the power of the evil one, the domain of darkness. But now in this prayer, Paul tells us one of the great gospel blessings we have is this astonishing reality. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness. We've been delivered from Satan's authority, bondage to our sin and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. He breaks the power of canceled sin and he sets the prisoner free. He rescued me from the domain of darkness and transferred me into the kingdom of his beloved son. What would it be like? Think, can I give you an illustration to maybe underline the beauty of those words, that reality? What would it be like to be translated from darkness to love and light? Here's an earthly illustration from the Battle of Dunkirk. Signalman Percy Charles was wounded at Cassel and he boarded a train to Northfield being medevaced out of the battlefield of Dunkirk. That train traveled all night and at 7 a.m. the following morning, Charles awakened was awakened by brilliant greenish lights streaming through the window. He glanced around and noticed the other men in the compartment were crying. Then he looked out the window and the sight he saw was what the poets have been writing about for so many countries, centuries. It was the green English countryside. After the dirt, the blackened rubble, the charred ruins of northern Europe, the impact of all this fresh greenness was too much for the men. The men simply broke down. Now listen, we've been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. And Jesus says, I don't want you to forget it. So you better do this in remembrance of me. Finally, we give thanks for redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, this is our greatest need. In its most basic form, the word redemption refers to the payment needed to rescue somebody in the first century from the slave market. The only way a slave could go free is if somebody paid the ransom. Somebody had to pay the redemption price. Of course, we as readers of the Bible know that how God paid the ransom to redeem his people from Egypt. They were ransomed by the blood of a lamb. And again, as Isaiah said, as we've seen the last few weeks, the Lord is called, Isaiah 40 to 66, the Lord is called the redeemer of his people as he redeems them from Babylon. But this costly price for the freedom of those in bondage, this price that we enjoy 
comes to its greatest fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. For Jesus once said that I he characterized his ministry. You remember that I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom payment in the place of many. There it is. Jesus paid with his life the ransom for our sin. That means every Thanksgiving. You know, I'm not alone here. I know I remember my mom and dad are not here. But you know what that means? Death, where's your sting? My heart won't be healed yet till I see them finally. But what I can say is that Jesus paid their ransom price and you don't win. And they're enjoying something far greater. And so will you. And so will I, because we have not been redeemed with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And you know what that means? Forgiveness of sins. So from this Thanksgiving table, we must be thankful most. He has qualified us. He's delivered us. He's transferred us. He's redeemed us. And now we can say we've been forgiven from all our sin. Delivered from sin's grim tyranny. Redeemed through his son. And that is the origin of all our thanksgiving. Whatever nation that you're from. Whatever your story. And a thanksgiving having begun will never end. And all God's people said... Amen.